Mac Power Users, Episode 304, MPU Live for February 6, 2016. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. Thank, welcome to another MPU Live, David. Never never without incident. I love it. I love hearing the music live. You know, I'm like playing my air drums Saturday morning. I'm ready, baby. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we've got another great show. You know, normally for MPU Live, we have a guest segment right up front. Um, we will have a guest joining us a little bit later in the show, but I think they're at a birthday party right yeah. now. Um, so hey, we, if, there's, if there's cake involved, we will let you come late. That's that's the moral of the story. But only if you bring us a slice. There you go. Yeah. Um, so our guest will be joining us a little bit later. So uh, stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, I figured, you know, we've got a big backlog of listener questions that we haven't gotten back to yet. A lot of folks have been using that hashtag AskMPU. You know, if you tweet us a question and you put the hashtag AskMPU in there uh, via the magic of Twitter, um, we will uh, get a, or sorry, via the magic of if this, then that, all of those tweets will go to a special MPU spreadsheet that we have behind the scenes and we compile those and use them for a future MPU live. Yep. So, all right, here we go. Well, uh, first we've got a question from listener Scott and he said in uh, episode 300, he was pretty sure that he heard me say that I used an if this, then that recipe that would take anything marked as a favorite in Mr. Reader and save it as a bookmark and pin board. And he would like to do the same thing, but can't work out how. And was wondering if I could point him in the right direction because there's no Mr. Reader connection in If This Then That. So how would you do that? Um, well, the way that I do that is, you know, Mr. Reader is a great app for aggregating all of your RSS feeds, but you really have to have some kind of background um, synchronization engine for that. And the one that I use is Feedly. So you've got all of your RSS feeds going into Feedly, and Feedly does have uh, an if this then that recipe or an if this then that channel. Um, so what I do is I go in with with Mr. Reader and I go in with um, Reader on uh, the Mac, and I will go through. And this is how I do these these weekend review posts that I've I've started posting on Sundays. And anything I find something interesting, or anytime I find something that I want to read a little more, but maybe don't have time to right then. I'll put a little star next to it. And that works in Mr. Reader. And it works in um, Reader as well, Reader with two E's. And it will save that for me to read later. It marks it as a favorite in Feedly. Or, and then I've got a special recipe that will take that and save it to Pinboard uh, with If This Then That. And then I've also got another If This Then That recipe that will take that and save it to my Instapaper queue. So I can go back and read it in Instapaper. And then I've got another little piece of magic on my website worked out that will take my pinboard public pins and I create that. I've got a reading list over on katiefloyd.com. So if you're curious in what I've been saving and what I'm interested in reading, you can find that out as well. So it's kind of an interesting way for me to share the the stories that I find interesting. I have a geek confession. Okay. So I um I've been you know, everybody talks about the wonders of Pinboard and why you should subscribe. And I subscribed for a couple of years and realized I'd never really used it for anything. And I know that it like keeps an archive of the stuff that you mark as a favorite and all that. And I, I'd never gone back and reviewed anything in it. I let it, I let it um, terminate. I just, you know, I just don't think I use it. I bet you haven't because I think Pinboard was one of those that if you subscribe to it, you had a lifetime subscription. Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, Go back I really, and look. I'll have to take a look. But I just, 
I've just never really found a good reason for it. I mean, most of the stuff that was interesting to me six months ago really is no longer interesting to me. I tell you, Pinboard is not something that I actively use, but I find that I use it as a back end to connect a couple of things. And and it was fairly inexpensive. I mean, I think it was, you know, in the teens or 20s, and it was a a lifetime subscription at the time that I signed up. I'm not sure if that's still their, their business model. But because of Pinboard, I can make this cool recipe that anything I save using the magic of this and that goes to my Instapaper queue. And then I get to share it with other people because I know other people follow me on Pinboard and they can import interesting things into their RSS feed. And then I can import that into my website as my interesting reading list. I mean, so it was worth it for that, for me to have those kind of things. And sometimes I'll go back and say, you know, I was remembering I was reading an article that was about that. I know I read that at some point and I can go back and Pinboard and, and search. Yeah, I I know it's a bit of a tangent, but it, it is um for me all that is solved by if this then that support in um pocket, but but that's probably a whole other story for another day. Right. All right, so next question we had was from JB who wants to know where you store your scanned books. And that's an interesting question. I'd like to know the answer to that as well because I know you've scanned a lot of books. Are you just keeping them as PDF? Are you keeping them as as iBooks? Because I've got some interesting issues with with textbooks that I'm struggling with right now. Okay, so uh, I've I've talked before about the sawing. So I'll, I'll leave the sawing out of this one. Every time I do that, people worry about my digits. Uh, but once you get a book broken into pieces and you scan it in with something like a ScanSnap or your scanner of choice, uh, it, it saves as a PDF. And the first thing I always do is I make sure it's OCR. I, I generally do that through the ScanSnap software because it does it while it comes in. Quite often, if they're really big books, especially like some of the legal stuff I have, um, I do it in pieces and I save them all to a single folder and they come in and I try to do it by chapters. So I save them by chapters and then I combine them in a PDF pen and then I start bookmarking it. So then, you know, once I get the thing assembled into one file, it's all OCR'd and I bookmark it. And usually I just bookmark it by chapter. Um, and I did the same thing with cookbooks, you know, it's like, you know, the soup chapter and the, you know, the dessert chapter, whatever. And but I don't go through and like bookmark each individual section within that. Um, over the years with some of the legal stuff that I use repeatedly, I do add bookmarks as I use them more. So that so that's kind of the software end of it. And I know that's not really the question, but I feel like that's kind of one of the steps to get there. So so you've got it as one file as a PDF OCR with at least rudimentary bookmarks in it. Then I've got because I have the super big um, Dropbox uh, folder. I've got a folder in there. Actually, I've got a couple. Um, one of them is mainly like called, you know, reading and it's got um, subcategories of stuff in there. And I've got another one for legal references. And like in the in the general reading one, I'll have subcategories for like programming and one for, you know, fiction and one for science fiction or what, you know, I've got different folders. Now, I don't keep all of those on all of my devices at all times, but but because they're in Dropbox, anytime I want, I can open one up in wherever I'm at. With me so far? Yeah, but I think what they're asking is, what are you opening them in? So you're just keeping I, I'm them. I'm about as- to get there. Okay. I'm about to get there. All right. to, I just want to make sure you're with me this far. Okay, so I've got I've got them all in these um in these you know nested folders on a Dropbox folder. And then when I want to read one, I want to get to the, the certain cookbook or whatever, I will open the, um, I will reference it in the Dropbox app on the iPad. 
and then I will open in in the um, iBooks application, the iBooks reader application. So that's that's where I read them. So some what the, what benefits does stuff, yeah what the, benefits does opening in iBooks versus something else give you? Well, as, as I was about to say, for the legal stuff, I will open it in a PDF reader because sometimes I'm highlighting and doing things with it. But if it's something I just want to read, I'll open in iBooks. Yeah. But iBooks can read PDFs just fine. Yeah. And PDF applications can read them just fine. So I guess it really kind of depends on, on where, where I'm going. But the point I have is I, I don't keep them all on all devices at all times. I have them referenced in, in a Dropbox uh, cloud. So here's my current dilemma, and I don't know if you can offer me ideas or, or maybe the listeners can write in with some suggestions. But for one, you know, I'm in my last semester of this master's program. Thank goodness it's almost done. I'm Amen. completely over it by now. Congratulations. That's, <laughs> so that's one of my one of my textbooks is a, a, a two volume PDF and it's about 600 pages each. And so it's it's pretty dense. It's a pretty big pain. And. I got to figure out, I've got significant reading to do. Like this weekend, I've got about 100 pages of reading on the Commerce Clause. David, do you remember the Commerce Clause? Yeah, I do. And the reverse Commerce Clause and all that wonderful stuff. I I won't go into detail. But I've got about 600 pages worth of reading to do. So I've got to read and I've got to highlight and then, you know, maybe make a few notes, but but mainly reading and highlighting to the Commerce Clause. Okay, so is the OCR, is the file OCR? Oh yeah, the file is totally OCR'd. But, But here's my problem. If I open it up in like a PDF editor application... And keep in mind, I've got an iPad mini and I love my iPad mini. And I know you're going to say my solution to this problem is to get an <laughs> iPad Pro and an Apple Pencil. But let's take that off the table for a minute, okay. okay? Okay. So I've got the file open in my iPad mini. And when I've got it open on my iPad mini, I can see about, you know, by the time I blow it up so it's easily readable, about half the page at a time. And so to to highlight something, you know, what I've got to do is I've got to, you know, I've got to Go to the toolbar. I've got to click the highlight button. I've got to highlight what I want. Go back to the toolbar. Unclick the highlight button so that I've got my scroll back. You know, scroll again and then go back to click the highlight button. Highlight again what I yeah, want. Go that's, back. That's, un, that's unworkable. Yeah, so, I mean, it's yeah. just it's it's a bunch of back and forth and click, and it totally you know interrupts the flow. I honestly, with with given that you know the the situation is you don't have an iPad Pro and a pencil, but you've got an iPad Mini, I would say I would do that work on your Mac. Yeah. Well, I mean, even having, I think, a, because of the format that this PDF is in, because it's a fairly large format, e- yeah. even having a regular size iPad probably would not have solved this problem for me. Oh, I, yeah. Oh, you mean the iPad Air? Right. Well, if you could read it, you could fit um, a full page on iPad Air. I did it for years. It's yeah, but a this, it's a, li- it's a little one. larger format than normal book. I mean, it's yeah. not an eight and a half and 11 size book. The book itself is a little larger. It's more like tabloid size format. Yeah. Yeah, well, I get you know, and I guess to answer, get back to the question is is when I do the legal stuff a lot of times, if it's something going to annotate, I open it up in a PDF app. You know, that's you know usually PDF pen. Yeah. And um, one of and, the things that people have suggested is potentially converting this into an EPUB because if you're reading an actual Kindle book, you can highlight in the Kindle app, and and somehow they've got it where you can you can highlight and then scroll and then continue highlighting. But, yeah, well, just software. I mean, yeah. yeah. So. You could do that in iBooks as well if you convert it into an EPUB. Right. I don't know. I haven't really tried highlighting with iBooks um, to an existing PDF because that's always felt to me like a PDF app thing. I'm gonna. I'll test that out. You, you can't highlight more. a PDF in iBooks. You can. Cannot. Okay. So you got to. You've got to convert it to EPUB. But that's not that difficult. Although going from PDF to EPUB, um, 
I don't know, you know, like we don't know what kind of copy protection is on that file for your textbook. It's it's just a straight PDF. It's fine. Okay. Well, you might be able to do that. There is an app. It's it's horribly ugly. It's called. It'll come to me later. I forget the name of it. But there, there's an app that's made for converting things to EPUB. And um, just give me a minute, and I'll search it later. But but there's an app you may want to try. But I I would definitely not be doing 600 pages of reading and highlighting on an iPad Mini. That's just me. All right. Well. Okay. Sounds like there's. Not a great solution to my problem. But if anybody else has a better one, other than go I out. I know, and, great solution. It's just cost you a bunch of money. Other than, than costing me <laughs> over $1,000. I mean, if that were the case, I mean, honestly, the better solution may be to go out and buy the actual physical book version. Because I can do that for less than th- less than $250. But Yeah. Yeah. So. Although I, I think that the, you get a lot more out of an iPad. So, yeah, you know, you pay extra, but. Like I'm using it right now. It's got all the audio information for the show. All right. Uh, We also got a question from uh, listener Dave about juggling multiple reminder lists with Siri, because, you know, we were talking about how there are quirks with inputting tasks uh, from Siri into reminders or OmniFocus or things or any of these apps that have the ability to basically plug into your reminders list. And how you have to be, you know, we really have to, just to even get things on the reminders list with Siri, we have to adapt our language. And then if you want to put things on specific reminders list, you it's, you know, you really have to adapt your language to say, you know, remind me at 2 p.m. You know, to take out the trash on my OmniFocus list or on my do list or, you know, depending on how you've got it configured. Um, and Dave was saying that he's not using the default list for OmniFocus. Um, he's keeping that for reminders, but then he started thinking about using his default list for do, uh, that's D U E the, the app that will kind of keep reminding you about tasks and auto snoozing them because with an in-app purchase do can auto import from reminders, but he's not sure about that either because, uh, you know, it's, you've, you've got to use all this convoluted language to, to get things onto different lists. And he just didn't know if there was a better way other than altering our vocabulary to make some of this stuff work. Yeah, I mean, I think his solution seems to work pretty well. I mean, he's so he's got different reminders lists that go to different sources. For me, for OmniFocus, I I have a specific reminders list called the inbox, you know, which makes it more consistent when I give the the command to Siri, you know, add my spicy carrots to my inbox list. Then it always shows up in OmniFocus versus things if I say add it to my target list, it shows up on an entirely different list that remains in reminders. Um, I, I don't know that is you your, know, is your default reminders list just in the reminders app? Yeah. And I, I just, I, I almost never use it because I've always got, I'm always giving a specific list because usually for reminders I have, it's, it's a lot of shopping lists, you know, and sometimes it's like a list of books I want to read and some other things. Uh, but, but for, for OmniFocus, it's the inbox. And, uh, I like his idea though, of having a separate one just for do, although, I very rarely use do. I've got like two things that go in there. So I probably don't need it. What do you think? I've got my, how is mine set up? No, my, my default list goes to OmniFocus, I think is, is how it is set up. And because I don't use reminders for much, except for, 
like a shopping list. So anything that I'm adding to my shopping list, I just tell it to add whatever to my shopping list. My default list goes to reminders. And then I, I have a separate list that's called my do list, but I had to name it do do list. Uh, and now, you know, Dave has got me thinking I may want to rename that something different, like renaming it to my time sensitive list. Although that, that, that sounds like I'm just going to fumble over even more words. Um, so right now, if I want to add something to my do list, my DUE list, what I what I typically say is, you know, remind me at two o'clock to uh, call Dave on my do list. Do you ever use the one remind me when I leave? I use that all the time. Yeah. And that will just go on the standard reminders list. Oh, exactly. although I guess in my case, it will get imported into OmniFocus. Yeah. Like if I, if someone calls and I can't take the call, say, remind me when I leave to call Katie. And then when I get in the car and start driving, I get a little bump and then I can give her a call. Um, I, one of my, uh, projects I I've got pending, I want to write a post on it is looking into, cause, because OmniFocus is giving you a lot more control over perspectives over the last probably year. They've get, added new like criteria and, and looking, can I put some of these like shopping lists into OmniFocus and still keep it working for me? I just haven't had time to really dig in on that. Uh, we, we got a bunch of emails and this has been going on now for a couple of months. I thought I'd address it on the live show as, as people keep asking me, cause we, we keep talking about words and, and pages. I said, well, where do you stand on word versus pages now, now that Microsoft has really kind of upped their game with the Microsoft office suite. And I would agree that they've upped their game on this, on the office suite, a great deal on the iPad, uh, on the Mac, not so much. I still have occasionally crashes when I'm working on something and I, I still feel like, um, word is a second class citizen compared to the PC version. But I find that I use word almost more now on my iPad pro than I do on my Mac, which was something I never thought I'd say. And th so, so that has given me more excuses to use it. Uh, in terms of which do I use most, it really, it, it, again, once again, it really depends. I find pages a lot more stable. I like the way like it does search and replace better and some of the other things I do. Uh, formatting is generally easier with Word if you're doing style formatting. But I do, my default is usually pages, but so much of my work involves other people that quite often I use Word because I know that's going to be able to um, be shared with people on the other side. I'm How about you? Um, I, I use Word if it's word processing, you know, if I'm it's something that I'm if it's something that I'm sharing with somebody else. But I use pages more for what I would consider desktop publishing or, you know, word processing plus, you know, if I'm creating an invoice or something that's a little more pretty. I, I, I very rarely do I use pages like to type a letter. If it's just plain text, it's probably something that I'm doing in by word. If it's word processing, I'm probably doing it in Word. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So, uh, I, I've written some pretty like long contracts and things in pages and just find some of my clients are like Mac users. And I love that. Those are my favorites because, you know, we can just use pages. <laughs> um, uh, Jan wrote in about um, Sonos and how am I using my Sonos uh, asked if I could use Sonos with overcast and it doesn't uh, overcast does not uh, interact directly with Sonos. Um, but you can use it if you have a separate input to your Sonos. So like if you've got it plugged in with a cable or if you've got something like an AirPlay um, setup. And the way you do that is if you've got an AirPort Extreme or actually an AirPort 
I forget the, what the, what's the other the smaller one called airport express express there we go uh, so I've got an extra airport express in the house I actually named it Sonos and I use the audio cable coming out of the back of it and plug it into the play five in the house which has an input and I can always set that as a source you know if you if you drag up to the control center at the bottom of your iPhone you can set you know what's your where's your sharing source you can share to that it's called Sonos on the network and once I do that, it goes into the network and I can attach whatever speakers in the house I want to it. So any audio, not just overcast, can get played through that way. I know that's a little wonky. Uh, I hope at some point it gets better where the apps can address it directly. But uh, that being said, it, it's still great. Angelo asked the question that I, I think the answer is constantly changing. But, you know, what's the current state of things is. What are our thoughts on how much RAM do you actually need these days? <laughs> I, I'm I'm so bad about these things. I say as much as you can afford when you buy the computer, because so often now it's soldered on the board. And in terms of expenses, it's not too expensive to add additional RAM and additional RAM always serves you well. I mean, I, at any one time I look at my Mac and I've got so many apps running, including things that use a lot of horsepower, like speech recognition and, you know, iBooks author and these other applications. The um, so the the more RAM I have, I feel like the safer I am, and the less my computer has to page out to save memory onto the disk drive or the hard drive. Um, so when I buy them, I usually buy the maximum RAM I can. Now that's not like a video production station that has thirty two gigabytes, but I, I think my iMac has sixteen. And my MacBook has the most they would give it, which might just be four. I'll have to go look. I don't even remember. But I, that's when I say, if you even have to wait a couple more months to save a few bucks, uh, go ahead and put the, the most amount of RAM you can into it. Because a lot of times you can't even upgrade it anymore. Right. I, I think my floor at this point would be eight gigabytes. I probably wouldn't do anything less than eight gigs. And I think if you can bump up to 16 and it's not going to break the bank for you, that would be the thing. I, I think eight gigs is probably fine if you're surfing the web, if you're, um, you know, just doing email and just doing basic things with your Mac. I think if you're going to be doing anything more heavy lifting, if you're going to be doing audio processing or video or things like that, you're going to want to bump up to 16. Yeah. And hey, why not? More RAM is better, right? <laughs> Well, it's always better. It's just, you know, it's just remember, always a, a factor of cost. Remember when Apple used to like just completely rip you off on RAM? I mean, it, it was really bad for a long time where you could go buy it from a third party for one third the cost of what it would cost to buy it from Apple. They don't do that anymore. I mean, now that now it's more competitive, so it's not as big of a deal. But it used to be when you bought a new Mac, you always ordered the RAM from somebody else. And the first thing you did before you even really started setting up is you installed the new RAM. Okay, um, let's take a break to talk about a sponsor because uh, we've been going for a while. And and the sponsor, first sponsor today is one I'd like to talk about, and it's our friends over at SaneBox. Um, SaneBox is this third-party mail service that you subscribe to, and it just solves so many of the problems that come with email in 2016. Uh, so the way it works is you give them your email account and they, they take a look at your emails that's coming into your box for you. Now, they don't look at the actual content of the email they just look at who sends it and what the subject line is. They don't, they don't read your email. 
But just with those two bits of information, they can learn so much about what's important to you and they'll start sorting your box out for you. So in the morning you'll wake up and instead of having a hundred emails, you'll have seven and then you'll have, you have a separate box they call later. That's got maybe 30 of them in it that are, you know, things that are important to you, but not as important as an inbox item. And then they've got another one called news. It's got all the news items in it and it just dumps all that stuff in there. And you can add additional ones as you go at it. I've got one called feedback for Mac power users that just, it it's like, does this insane job of finding every bit of feedback that comes in for the show and puts it into a specific folder. So it doesn't go in with all my other email in the morning. Uh, all this happens uh, with the magic of same, same uh, box. And that's not the only thing they can do. They can also set up a deferred email system for you. So if you have, a uh, sane box uh, folder that you call one day and you, you drag an email into it, then it disappears. You don't see it for a day. I've got those for hours, days, sometimes weeks. And it's just a really great way to organize it. We actually talked about this a lot in that email show we did just last week. And I'd recommend going back and listen to that if you've never checked this stuff out. But that's, uh, once again, not everything you can do. It also has things like it can monitor if someone replies to you. So if I send a email to Katie and I blind copy it to one week at Sanebox and she doesn't reply in a week, it'll remind me in a week, hey, that email you sent to Katie never got a reply on it. It has a thing called the black hole where you can put email in it and no future email comes from that place. It just all goes straight to the trash. Um, it, it's really, and I'm not even talking about all the features with just that amount of information. It's just a, a great solution to solve the email problem. And I feel like it's my secret weapon. Uh, I've got it on all my accounts and use it every day. Uh, it learns from you as you move things around. It gets an idea of what's more important than you, to you. They're always adding new features. They, they've got one now called saying no reply. And it's a, a box they'll make for you that just keeps a list of emails that you've sent out that have not received a reply. And they're always trying new things like that. So, so go check it out. You can uh, learn more over at sanebox.com. The, uh, let me hold on here. I, I scrolled too fast, Katie Floyd. Samebox.com slash MPU. Uh, there we go. Samebox.com slash MPU. And you can go check it out. They've got um, $10 off any plan if you sign up through Samebox.com slash MPU. Uh, we checked with them again. Uh, once again, our listeners are insane um, Samebox users. They love it. Uh, our show is probably... Well, it is, they've said, the most successful sponsorship they've ever done. 66% of MPU listeners who tried Sandbox subscribed. And that's because, you know, we all get it. We're all trying to get our work done. And this will save you hours, you know, and days over the course of the year. So go check it out, Sandbox.com. Thank you so much for the support. Once again, Sandbox.com slash MPU. All right. Uh, Omar wrote in with a question to ask MPU. He said, is there an easy way to convert Word docs to PDF? And th there are a couple of easy ways to do this. I mean, one is you can use the print PDF menu that you can do with just about any app now in, in OS ten, And that's easy if you go to file print and you can ex you know print as a PDF. But if you've got a bunch of documents that you want to export as a PDF, there's actually an automator action that will do that for you. And I've put a link in the show notes. You can either build your own or you can just model it after this um, automator action. But you can, you know, either save that as a folder or a folder action, or you can either make it as a application that you can drop things onto. You know, there's a lot of power in automator. We've done some shows on it before. Yeah. The idea of a folder action, if you've never heard of it before, is you create a specific folder 
And every time you drop a file in there, Automator does things to it. And so if you had a bunch of Word files you want to convert to PDF and you had a folder action, you could just drop them all in there and it would just do the work for you. It's a great, it's a great source. And that's kind of an interesting point as we go into the other, you know, common thread of feedback we've had lately, because I've talked a lot about the iPad Pro is people saying, well, where, where do you stand on the, the laptop versus the iPad? Um, you know, that, that example you just gave of a folder action, that's the kind of thing you can't do on the iPad. You know, you need a Mac to make that happen. And I got thinking about this as well. Koi Vin just wrote an article about how he's dumping his laptop. And that really made me think about Katie because Katie is, you know, thinking as she goes into the future, will she get an iPad pro or a laptop? And his point was that the iPad is so much easier to use and easier to travel with that uh, he's decided he, while he's keeping his big Mac on his desk, he's going to be done with Mac laptops and just use the iPad pro. Um, and which kind of goes against the grain, right? Cause everybody talks about, you know, the big Macs on your desk are going away and now everybody's about laptops. I I'll tell you, uh, I still really am getting a lot of delight out of using the iPad pro. And that's the word I chose carefully delight because it's, it is more fun to use and it is nice using iOS, which is simpler, uh, but sometimes it's slower and sometimes it's a lot slower. And I think the inflection point for me is automation type stuff and bulk, you know, editing type stuff. Like even in OmniFocus, I want to select all and mark them for today. I can do that on my Mac with a couple seconds. You can't do it that fast on an iPad. See, one of the things that I think is interesting is I just don't find an iPad Pro to be that portable, especially compared to like a small MacBook Air or even the MacBook One. Yeah, it, it well, it's, it's a different sort of portable. If that makes any sense. Um, but, but I agree. I mean, it's, it's a big screen. You, you can't you can't get it smaller than it is, but it's pretty thin and it's you don't have to be as delicate with it, if that makes sense. Anyway, I'm going to link the Koi Van article. I think this is kind of ongoing discussion. I guess the good news is now you've got a choice. And we've got an audio comment from Corey who wanted to know about a new service from Backblaze. So let's hear that. Hi, Katie and David. I recently saw that Backblaze expanded beyond personal and business backup and into cloud storage. If you look at what they offer, uh, their pricing seems competitive, if not better, than services like Amazon or Google. I was wondering if there's an opportunity to use a software like Arc Backup with Backblaze's cloud storage for your personal backup needs. Are there situations where this would be better than just a personal Backblaze account? Uh, thanks for everything you do. Look forward to hearing from you. Bye-bye. Have you looked at... I've looked at it. Um, so I, I think the answer is it really depends. I think it depends on what type of... How much you need to back up. Because you... Although the B2 storage is fairly inexpensive, I think the two things you need to look at is how much do you do you need to back up? And then the other thing is how are you going to get it up to B2? You know, we've talked in the past about a, an application called Arc, which will um, do backups and it backs up famously to a lot of web services, including Amazon's, including Google Drive, um, using your own cloud storage like Box. And I've used Arc with some of my family members who have fairly small backup sets to, to back up to their Google Drive or things like that. Currently, Arc does not support B2, but, you know, reading some of the comments um 
to the B2 post, I, I know that it's something that they're looking at. So it would not surprise me at all if ARC supports B2 in the very new, near future. Yeah, another issue I think on this is how much do you need to access the data and from where are you accessing it? Um, iCloud and Dropbox are pretty much universal. I mean, if you're using iOS devices, you know, if you're using Apple, you know, Macs and iOS, if you've got iCloud or Dropbox, you're going to get it in just about any app. Uh, Box is an up and comer and it has been for years and it's getting increased support across the line. Um, you know, B2, I don't know. I mean, is your favorite PDF app going to be able to access the data on there? Well, and I think he's just using it, talking about using it for straight backup. And I think he's saying using Backblaze, Backblaze, the consumer app versus the, the B2 app. Yeah. Well, or the, the B2 storage solution. And, and I think you really just need to do a store, a, a price breakdown because how much data can you store up in B2 and at what cost and at what hassle, you know, versus the $5 a month or 60, or is it 50 bucks a year or so that you're going to spend on Backblaze? And, you know, they've already got the infrastructure in support for that. You know, they've already got the apps and all that you're going to use. Yeah. Yeah. But another kind of theme we see here is that, you know, offsite storage and cloud thingies are just getting easier. I mean, uh, a few years ago, basically it was Dropbox and Google. I mean, Apple, I wouldn't have, con I actually didn't consider Apple as one of the real serious cloud players. And now um, these big companies are all getting into it successfully. So, you know, they're figuring out maybe it's a combination of improvements in hardware and software and just general knowledge about cloud computing. Uh, I think in the next year or two, you're going to see even small companies offering very effective cloud solutions. I mean, an example I can think of the Omni Group have their own cloud um, syncing service that works pretty much flawlessly for their software. Um, so all this stuff is just getting easier. So there will be more competition. I think pricing will come down and, um, and it's going to be a lot of, we're going to have an abundance of riches with cloud storage as we move forward. Well, we got a ton of feedback on um, the Plex show. Uh, Peter wrote in and said, you know, every time you brought up Plex, I kind of thought it was crazy that you would set up a server to, to store your movies on. You said a Mac mini or a Drobo would cost near a thousand dollars Australian. And I don't know what the currency is in Australia, um, but is that the Australian? I guess this is the Australian dollar. He said, while listening to your show, you mentioned that you could run it on a Mac, a PC or anything. He said, I happen to have a six-year-old Fujitsu T710 laptop which was the single worst computer that I've ever used lying around. And I thought, what the heck, I'll have a go at it. He said, I set up this laptop with an external one terabyte hard drive. And uh, Peter said to make sure that the drive is new, new enough uh, to move data quickly. And he plugged it into internet and it was a great solution. So there you go. Exactly. You plugged it into ethernet. Ethernet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ethernet's the internet, but yeah, same thing. Yeah. So, so Plex is not particularly, um, um, hard on a processor so you can use an older computer to do it thanks peter that was a good idea um cleave wrote in about plex in the car <laughs> that was a good one yeah she says so we're currently using plex on an old macbook 2007 as an in-car mobile media center for our three kids while traveling generally the server will be streaming three to four hd streams to three to four ios devices within the vehicle with excellent quality and no jitter or lag the secret sauce that really got it working was upgrading the MacBook to an SSD. And he says the current configuration is the MacBook 2007 that runs the Plex server and contains all the video files 
The MacBook gets power from a cheap AC-DC inverter. You can get those and plug your plug into in your car. And he uses some older software that allows him to close the lid of the MacBook without letting it go to sleep. And then the MacBook has an Apple Airport Express hanging off it uh, via Ethernet. It creates a small car network. The kids have iOS devices that connect automatically in the car. Says right now they're uh, the rolling Plex server for long trips, uh, which is the only time we allow the kids to use devices in the car. Good for you. Um, so we just toss the MacBook and Airport Express in the trunk near the AC inverter for power and forget about it. And with a little work, you could easily customize the installation for permanent placement. As a bonus, you might even tap the Airport Express into your car audio system to allow airplay to your car's audio system. Uh, clever. That is just an insane setup. But it, you know, it's not that insane though I, when you think about it. it if you it's have very old, clever. And also, I think the SSD is important because uh, a traditional hard drive uh, spinning in the trunk as it's the car is bouncing down the road is inevitably going to crash. Sure. Smart. I thought that was great. You know, my kids uh, at this point, my kids are at the age where they put their headphones in and look at their phones. And my wife and I can talk about all the terrible things they do. And they, they, they're none the wiser. (laughs) Uh, Andrew also wrote in about Plex. Yeah. um, Plex was, or Andrew was wondering what are the strategies out there for managing short videos that he took on his iPhone? He said, these are mostly short little clips of his kids doing funny things, but they get imported automatically into the photos app, but he wants to view them on Plex and he has to export them to his home videos folder and especially since he typically only watches them at home, he was wanting just to remove them from the Photos app to free up space in this iCloud library. Is there a way to do that? And you know, right now, the way to do that is kind of a workaround. There is a Plex app that has camera sync, but currently it only supports photos, not videos. Now, it looks like that's something they're working on in the future. Um, so my guess is it's coming, but it's not here yet. The the workaround that I thought might work um, is if you're willing to dive a little deeper, you could potentially set up a Dropbox auto upload for iOS and Dropbox will import videos. You know, you can set up Dropbox to auto upload your camera roll and then you could potentially set up a Hazel rule to move the videos into your Plex folder. If you've yeah, you know, work. got Plex mm-hmm. running on your Mac or on a network attached storage that's attached to your Mac that Hazel could get to. And, and we've had another Mac Power Users episode where we mentioned and Hazel, so our work is done. There you go. Um, Chris wrote in about sleep. He says, you know, if you're using a desktop Mac for Plex, do you disable sleep in the system preferences? And the answer is yes. You, you can have your screen go to sleep but, and even your hard disk, but not put the computer to sleep. Uh, it's, it's one of the settings. In fact, I do that on my iMac anyway because I have it doing all sorts of things in the background. And Sorting I, mail, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Bart wrote in and said he loves running Plex on his Synology and it works great. But his tip is to use a program called Identify, which is nine bucks in the App Store. We put a link in the show notes and it works great with movies and TV programs to add all the metadata. Now, typically Plex will do that for you. But if you don't have them quite named right, uh, then I one of these apps like Identify or iFlix, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, can help you with some of that. Yeah, and that's what we heard from Curtis talking about metadata for movies and other tunes. He says a great app is called iFlix. It takes care of the chore. He's been using it for years. The magic of the way iFlix works is that it takes a movie out of its MKV container and puts it into an M4V container without re-encoding the video. 
that would take handbrake two or three hours and is done in two or three minutes in iFlix. I don't know why I didn't put that in that show because I am a iFlix owner and I've used it on occasion as well. Yeah, I use iFlix for metadata, but I didn't know about the MK4V conversion thing. I will have to check that out. Yeah. Uh, and then Rick and a couple of other people asked me um, about my TiVo workflow because I mentioned previously on the past show that I would use this application called CTiVo, and I've put a link to that in the show notes, to pull episodes off of my TiVo kind of for archival purposes and put that into Plex. So what I have a tendency to do is there, you know, I don't have an opportunity to, to watch much TV, especially, you know, kind of during the fall when TV is on. So I tend to have by the end of the TV season you know, maybe several seasons of episodes, you know, that are backlogged, you know, 60 or so shows. It's not uncommon to have sitting on my TiVo that I haven't, you know, watched. And sometimes I'll have to clear off hard drive space on my TiVo, or sometimes I'll want to watch those shows on the go, maybe when I have more time in the summer or when we're going on vacation. So what I do is I use an app called CTiVo. I have that running currently on my Mac mini server, just it's slow, but that's okay because it's all that Mac Mini's doing. It's fine if it takes all day for it to convert a couple of TV shows. I don't mind. But it will go on and it will search. And you basically just, you can even set up a couple of season passes or you can do individual shows at a time. And it will pull those shows off the TiVo. Uh, it will convert them. And I've got mine set to convert it like Apple TV size. And it will put them wherever you want. So I schedule those shows to go into my Plex folder which means that all those shows are basically pulled off of my TiVo. They're still on the TiVo until I delete them from the TiVo and they end up in my Plex folder. And that CTiVo app actually has the ability to try to go through and skip the commercials. And it includes some metadata information that it pulls. So Plex does a pretty good job of, of trying to match up the information there. Okay. So it works so well. I have an important question. Okay. What, what is the show that you're like really into now on the, with this workflow? What show are you? Well, like my to? very favorite shows I try to watch during the fall. So I have a couple of shows that I watch during the fall, but there are a couple of shows that I don't get to watch. So probably the, um, I like Scorpion, you know, the one with the I've, geeks. I've never even heard of that. You've never even heard of that. Yeah. So I watch Scorpion during the summer. Oh, is it good? Yeah. Uh, the other one I have, and I have just seasons backed up of this is I didn't get into NCIS until years after it started to air. And so right now I'm like on NCIS season three, watching it very slowly. I don't so, even know. What, what does that mean? NCIS? What is NCIS? You, you've never, it's like the number one show on TV for 20 years. Wow. You don't I'm know so what out this of it. is. Yeah. And I so, discovered Mozart in the Jungle and I really like that one. Yeah. So That's when I started, when I started watching it, what I did is I set up a season pass on my TiVo, knowing that I would never watch these until I got to them. So I've got like seasons eight through, I think they're like on 13 or 14 now, stored up on my Plex server for when I get there. I need to, I need to work on that. I never heard of either one of those. <laughs> well, it may be too late for you now. Okay. Um, I've hey, now been to told that NCIS break? is on Netflix, so. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well. Want to do a sponsor break? Yeah. Let's talk about our next sponsor. And that is our friends over at Gazelle. And, you know, Gazelle is the online marketplace for buying and selling all of your used gadgets. You can shop from a variety of certified pre-owned electronics or trade in one that you have for cash and give new life to your used devices. So you can find more information about them at gazelle.com. That's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. And we've talked about Gazelle before. They are the trusted online marketplace for buying and selling your used devices. If you have an old device that you don't need anymore, maybe it's gathering dust sitting in a drawer, not doing anything for you, you can trade that in for cash. 
Or if you're looking for something like, you know, David seems to think that I need to get an iPad Pro, you can go look and see if they've got one. If you can buy a certified pre-owned one, or maybe you can do both. Uh, For trade-ins, just go to gazelle.com, find your device, and you'll get an instant price quote. Uh, Shipping is free and payment is fast. If you're looking to buy a certified pre-owned device from Gazelle, they've got a variety of iPhones, iPads, and Samsung Galaxy phones to choose from. Each of your device is fully inspected and backed by a 30-day return policy and sold without any kind of carrier contract, so you don't have to worry about being locked in. So you can go to gazelle.com today, see what your device is worth, and check out their selection of pre-owned devices. They've also recently introduced financing and warranties, so you can provide some basic information and get instantly approved to pay over 3, 6, or 12 months if you don't want to buy in a lump sum. And you can make easy monthly payments by online bank transfer check or debit card. They're also offering warranties now that cover water damage, cracked screens, hardware, quacked screens, there you go, uh, hardware defects, and more. And help is available 24-7 to help process your claims and your returns. Uh, The devices that you get from Gazelle are in good or excellent condition. I've seen some of these, and sometimes it's hard to believe that these actually are used devices. So if you head on over to gazelle.com, you can get more information about buying or selling a device. And if you sell your device, keep in mind that their offers are free. You can find out what your gadget is worth by just asking a few questions, and payments are fast. You either get a check in the mail, an Amazon gift card, or direct deposit to your PayPal account. So go over to gazelle.com, that's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E, and make sure you tell them that we sent you. I uh, I just sold two iPads to them and I got um they upgraded me one of them they said no the condition was better than what you said oh cool I thought that was cool yeah um anyway uh so we got a lot of general feedback to get through as well we spent some time talking about content blockers and one of the ones we mentioned was one blocker and Tom wrote in to say hey guess what you guys blew it one blocker does have a whitelist feature and I yeah that that was up. more so Katie blew it sorry about that yeah whatever oh we, we we take joint responsibility here um but he's right one blocker has a whitelist feature which is nice and um i frankly i didn't when we when you had said it i said yeah i just didn't think it would even be possible to to do that but somebody pulled it off and dennis wrote in to say on our recent ipad productivity show we talked about um file management and concentrated on cloud files and he wanted us to know about a great app called file browser Uh, that you can use on your iPad to get any file off of your computers. He says it's kind of like the finder for iPad. Uh, He has an OS X server VPN, so he can access files on his home network even when he's traveling. Uh, And he thought it was a very useful app that we should know about. Yeah, I'm going to look into that. Although I have to admit, I'm just kind of sold on the convenience of this cloud stuff. Yeah. Uh, like even when I was talking about the books earlier, I, I've got them on, on the Drobo and I've got them in various places, but where I really access them is off that folder in Dropbox. Mike wrote in saying, Hey, uh, using a virtual PC on an Amazon work, uh, workspace. So he has to use PC based drafting software and he didn't want to maintain a physical machine. So he set up a virtual machine on Amazon workspaces. And it's been great to run a much faster than his physical machine did. And he can access it from the Mac and the iPad, which is way cool. And it freaks people out when they see the Windows desktop running on an iPad. That is a great idea. I didn't even really realize that this was a service that was available from Amazon, but I guess it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, they, they've got the, the server space to do stuff like this. Right. And, you know, I had a lot of people ask me related to that show, 
why do I use a PC sitting under my desk? Why don't I use a service like virtualization or why don't I use something, um, you know, virtualization on my Mac with an yeah, app like Parallels? Parallels or, yeah. yeah. Or, or something like this Amazon workspace. And, you know, for me in my situation, the answer is my office already had the PC set up, you know, it was already in their network and all set up with all of their stuff. So that's why I use it. It's there and it works. Yeah. I get it. I just installed a, um, a virtual windows 10 on my, um, on my iMac. Cause I'm doing a little, uh, project that involves me having to do some stuff in windows and boy, windows has really changed a lot since I used to use it all the time. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um, and, uh, not necessarily for the better. <laughs> and Chris wrote in about standing desks and UPS, uh, Pro tip on the topic of using a battery backup UPS with a standing desk. Most of the small office and home office models have a mounting hole on the underside. And with a few screws, you can mount the back the backup UPS uh, to your desk or a higher location on the wall. Just be sure to find a stud or a heavy-duty uh, drywall anchor. Good idea. Yeah. I guess you just have to kind of hit it somewhere in the middle so that you've got room for the cord to go either up or down. Yeah. Yeah. I also heard a lot from people talking about uh, cord management. Um, after that show and and i think the most frequent uh, e uh email i got was people um loving that ikea um reference you had put that little device you buy at ikea you screw to the inside of the desk yeah i like that a lot it makes a lot of sense yeah all right well we got some listener workflows and tips as well you want to listen to some of those yeah so here's jim with a tip for filing emails greetings dave and katie I'm Jim, a lawyer in Jacksonville. I wanted to comment on the email handling um, that David was describing in episode uh, 297. He was talking about his use of mail tags uh, as a way to sort the email and store them. Um, he said that he prefers this method rather than just dragging and dropping the emails to various client folders. I agree that dragging and dropping would be tedious and error-prone. However, I use an alternative method to file the emails I use Keyboard Maestro and AppleScript. Basically, uh, my Keyboard Maestro macro will execute an AppleScript if I type Command-E while Microsoft Outlook is open. The AppleScript then analyzes the pre-selected email in Outlook to determine the sender's email address. Next, the script searches my contacts for a match to the sender's address. If a match exists, then the email is moved to the corresponding inbox subfolder that has been assigned to that client, and an approving sound is played. If there's no match, then the email is left where it is, it isn't moved, and a disapproving sound is played. Um, if anyone is interested in this process, I've described it in a little more detail uh, and posted some screenshots of the macro and the AppleScript at my blog, MacSoloLawyer.com. So thanks, and thank you guys all for your great work, and keep it up. We'll keep listening. Have a good one. Thanks, Jim. Um, and, so, and Jim's challenge there was he was working in Outlook, because in Apple Mail, you could set up rules to do the exact same thing he was talking about. Yeah, I guess I'm surprised that Outlook doesn't have a... I'm sure Outlook has a rule-based system to do this. Yeah. Keyboard Maestro, though, it has a lot of power to work in email, and um, and there's a lot you can do with Keyboard Maestro to... I mean, it's just, it's just like, I think it's the uh, Swiss Army knife of all the automation tools. So it, it does a little bit of everything, but I think Keyboard Maestro, if you really want to work on customizing mail, that'd be a really great place to, uh, to, to bone up your skills. Yeah. I also heard from Chip. 
Yeah, here's Chip. Hello, David and Katie. This is Chip in North Carolina. You asked about a content blocker which had easy whitelisting. I'd like to recommend Purify. I had used Crystal originally, but uh, as was pointed out, it doesn't whitelist easily. Purify does easily through the export box on your iPad or iPhone. Works fine. Give it a try. Thanks. Love your show. Okay. Well. Yeah, so there's another option. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on um, with the content blocking, but it's interesting to me how that was such a big deal when it first started. You know, everybody's worried the Internet's going to break. Everybody's going to shut down their websites because they can't make any money because they've had content blocking to iOS. And it doesn't really feel to me like it's had much of an impact. I, I don't think it has. And yeah, I don't think it's really hit mainstream yet. In fact, I'm doing a presentation to a group of lawyers a little bit later this month. And that's one of the things that I'm going to talk to them about is ad blocking and, and content blocking, because I, I know that many of them aren't doing it. And so one of the things we're talking about is like little quick tips and things that you can do to, to make your experience and your technology work better for you. And that's one of the things that I'm going to introduce them to. And I know that's a little bit taboo of, oh, how, how dare you introduce people to the idea of content blocking and ad blocking? And yeah, I, I get that, but it's just giving them information. It also speeds things up a bit, you know, because a lot of times what slows you down on, on websites is, is frankly, the advertising stuff. Um, you know, we have um, in the chat room, uh, David was talking about um, the Reddit community for Mac power users. Did you know we had one? I did not know that we had one. I am so embarrassed. I didn't know it either. <laughs> Mac power users has a Reddit community uh, that's on Reddit. And so if you're interested in Reddit or you're a Reddit user and you want to keep up the dialogue there, I know David has been working on that. Um, you go to Reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T dot com slash R slash Mac power users and you'll you'll find the community. I'm going to go in and log in and check it out. And we also also have the thriving community over at Google Plus which is another place you can kind of connect with Mac power users, listeners and uh, kick around ideas and automation ideas. There's, there's, there's so many smart people listen to our show. Yeah. Um, yeah. It looks like the Reddit community maybe hasn't been updated recently because it looks like it stops at show 290, but yeah. Well, well it's not bad. Yeah. But the, uh, the Google plus group is, is quite active. So it's very cool. Thanks to all those people who continue to participate in there as well. Yeah. So. Well, we do have a couple of more things to to cover. In fact, I just got a, a message that our guest is about ready to join us. Um, but before we do, and I apologize, I know it's a little bit soon, but I do so we can give our guest full time. Maybe, David, this would be a good time to take a quick break and talk about Bushel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Bushel is a cloud-based device management tool for iPads, iPhones, and Macs in your workplace. So if you're running your own business or have a you know small or medium-sized business and you're deploying these devices, you want a way to control them and, you know, just make sure you can manage them. And this used to be a thing that you had to hire somebody for. I mean, you had to bring in an IT pro and it just, it seemed like it was magic, right? Uh, Bushel takes the magic out of it and makes it possible for anybody to do this. It's designed to make complex tasks simple so you can focus on what matters most. And Bushel has a host of powerful features to help you manage your devices simply and easily they have a device inventory panel that lets you see the capacity of all your devices and which user is using which device so you can keep track of it. Uh, you can see what, app, what apps you've installed and even more at a glance. 
You can automatically install apps from the App Store to all of your devices at once. So if you say, okay, everybody, we're going to start doing PDFs on this application, you can, you can make it happen. And you can easily manage and configure the devices to suit everyone's work. Uh, with Bushel, if a device is lost or stolen, you can lock it remotely or wipe it completely so you don't have to worry about security. You won't have to worry about uh, business data being in the wrong hands. Uh, Bushel includes several enrollment methods, which means you can set up and configure company-owned devices without ever even having to physically touch the device. It's just a great solution. And and the, the point I really want to make here is if you've if you're running these things at your workplace, you can do it. You don't need to bring somebody in. I've played with the software. It's really simple. It's fully responsive app. It provides you a seamless experience so you can manage devices wherever you want, wherever you are, whether or not you have IT experience. And it's free up to three devices. So if you've got a small company, you can get in there. And it's not just free for a little while. It's free forever. After that, additional devices are only $2 a month with no contracts or commitments. So just a great solution to manage devices, Macs and iOS devices in the workplace. To find out more, go to bushel.com slash MPU. That's B-U-S-H-E-L dot com slash MPU. Thank you so much to, to Bushel for your support of the show. So there was a pretty big development uh, to one of the apps that we've talked about quite a bit in this show. Uh, day one, the journaling app that I know we've talked about has moved up to version 2.0. So we wanted to talk about that on MPU Live, and we thought, who better to bring in than Bradley Chambers, who has written about day one quite a bit over on the suite setup uh, and written a couple of guides about migrating to the new version of day one and using the new version of day one. So we would just like to welcome Bradley and uh, say welcome back to Mac Power Users. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. Yeah, we snuck in there. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of fun to coming on the back end of the live show and feel like you're watching behind the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just impressed that Katie was able to push all the buttons to get you in here while we were doing the show. That's not but easy. If you think about it, like I, I thought the other day that as much as we all complained about things not working, the fact that we are doing all this with relatively free technology is quite amazing. Yeah. <laughs> This well, I mean, live show has and, particularly and, been a, a bit of a train wreck. And as I was telling the people in the chat room, trying to straighten out some of these issues is kind of like working on a moving car without turning it off, you know, and, while and it's Kate, still running down the interstate. And Katie should totally get all the credit because she is the one who really does, you know, getting the, the audio patched in. And now she's doing it all on one Mac, which is super impressive. Maybe someday we'll have to work for Katie about that. Maybe anyway. we should get it working first. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Bradley, um, well, I, I thought of you immediately when I saw the new version come out and, um, and I, I'm sure you've been playing with it for a while. Um, uh, so let's just talk briefly. Uh, so day one has always been in my mind, the best in breed journaling application. It started, I believe on iPhone and then eventually made its way to iPad and Mac, or maybe it started on a Mac. I'm not even sure if I remember now. But it has been just a fantastic application for doing journaling, but it's always had some inherent limitations. Yeah, and I think but when I think about day one 2.0, I, I see it as a like a rebuild for day one where it's preparing for the future. So if you think back to day one 1.x, they offered iCloud Sync and Dropbox Sync. And I always suck with the Dropbox Sync. But you know, back, I think it was either May or March of 2015, they introduced their own day one sync. And I immediately switched to it right away. And because I, it's one of those things where it, you just know that 
if something goes wrong, they're going to have an, an easier chance to recover your data if you're using their sync. Uh, where you, you theoretically you hope and um, and so with day one 2.0, that's been one of the biggest changes and possibly one of the biggest frustrations for some existing day one users is it does drop Dropbox and iCloud with day one 2.0. And I, you know, I think I had no issues with launching the app and getting my data in there, just logged right in. But I do know some people that were trying to migrate as a part of this process did have some issues. Um, but uh, hopefully once, once all those initial bugs get worked out, then everything will be smooth sailing. It has been for me uh, ever since I switched over to their custom sync. I remember a few years ago talking to some of the folks over at the Omni group when um, when Omnipresence was still kind of a, a secret project. And and I said, well, why are you guys doing your own syncing service? They said, because we don't want to get on the phone with a customer and have to say, oh, your stuff isn't working because of something somebody else is doing. We want to own the whole experience. And that way we can be responsible for the whole experience. And I feel that that makes sense for day one as well. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, with day one 2.0, it is a, a paid app. So the uh, it's currently on sale. The iOS version is $5 and then the Mac version is 20 And they'll go up to uh, 10 and 40 respectively after the sale's over. But and I know a lot of people are you know always frustrated with having to buy a new app. But the bottom line is, if they came out and said, "Okay, day one is going to be ten dollars a year to use," we would all think nothing of, of paying that. Yeah. In reality, if you're a day one user, like ten dollars a year would be nothing. And but you know, I think I've had day one one point oh. It's a tongue twister, but I think I've been using that app like, for like almost five years. Yeah, and I only paid for it once. And now that I have a custom syncing service. They you know adding so they've added a ton of new features with day one two point more are on the roadmap you know and I expect this will they'll stay on day one two point x for a number of years you know it's a it's a great app it's a great service I'm you know actually kind of changing up my workflows I did not buy the Mac version just yet because I realized I mainly only journaled from iOS and so one of the things I'm working on this year is trying to compartmentalize my technology. So okay. if I'm wanting to write, I don't. I want to do that on my Mac because I, if I have ByWord on my iPhone, the temptation is to always write, even in places where I don't need to. You know, like waiting on my wife to get back, you know, from somewhere in the car. It's like I need just need to have a mental break. So I'm thinking I do all my journaling on my iPhone. So let's just do it there. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit big picture about using day one because people who may just be getting into journaling or may not using it. How are you using day one? And then maybe David and I can talk a little bit about how we're using it because I know my, my use of it has changed and is probably going to change again now that version two is out. Yeah. So I had mainly used it as a place to journal thoughts and pictures about my kids. I've got, I've got three children now. Um, they keep me, uh, I was up at four 30 this morning. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's been a long day. But um, it, and because one of the limitations of day one, one point X was you can only have one journal. And so if you wanted to use it for your family or for work or for you know exercise logs, they were all mixed in together. With day one 2.0, you can have up to 10 journals. So now I've got one for my kids. I've got one for like just personal thoughts. Um, I've got one for like exercise so I can track, you know, how I ate today. How did, how did my workout go? And just various thoughts. And so if you use it for work, let's say you take meeting notes in it, you can have a separate journal for that. And it's very easy to swap and it's very easy to change you know, where your existing notes are has bulk editing as well. And so that that to me has been the the single big, biggest feature is being able to compartmentalize work. And I really think it'll maybe some people that used Evernote for journaling or for some quick snapshots. Day one could possibly bring some of those people over. 
One of the yeah. things that I use day one for, and, and I've gone back and forth in my use, is I initially used day one primarily as a professional journal. You know, I was using it for keeping track of what I was doing at work, for notes and things like that. And I was really interested in journaling personally, so I stopped and I exported all those notes into text and I actually put them into Evernote and put them somewhere else. And really, honestly, what I did is I stopped using it as a just having a, a professional journal period and kind of missed that, honestly. And so then I started using day one more as a, a personal journal and, and I'm still struggling with that. I, I've never been a journaler, so journaling for me was was hard. Um, and then what I started doing is Brett Terpster, I know, has a great service called Slogger. One that I've been using is called, um, gosh, I'm talk about a name to pronounce, but it's like a Gift Daddy or Gift. It's, it's basically a mashup between If This Then That. And it, it's I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's a, a service that will allow you to take all of your social things, connect it through If This Then That and a little hazel magic on the backside. And it will put, you know, your tweets into day one. It will put your pictures that you take with your camera into day one. It will take your Facebook updates and put it into day one. It will take your Instagram posts and put it into day one. So it's basically a cheat way of saying all of these places that I regularly post, you know, if I like something in Instapaper, or if I post something to my website, pull that into day one, because I'm already doing a lot of social things anyway. And it was a, it was a good place to kind of give me a starting point to collect all of this in, in a journal and, and document some of that. And now I think with day one version two, I'm going to be able to do both of those things. I'm going to be able to keep, you know, kind of a live stream of, of what's going on in my, my social media life. I'm going to be able to keep a professional journal and I'm, you know, going to be able to keep more of a personal journal if I want to. Yeah. I mean, one of the big features I thought about you, Katie, immediately when I saw this is you can have multiple journals now. And that was always your hangup. You wanted to do the professional stuff, so it didn't leave room for you to do personal journaling. And now I think you can put up to 10. Is it, Bradley, that you can have? Yeah, it's it's 10. They can each have their custom name and a custom color as well. Um, and then you can also have multiple photos inside of one single note. So you can even use it to create like a travel. Uh, you could have a travel journal and have a, you know various notes for your trips. And, um, you know, one of the great things about it is even if you wait till you get back from a trip, if you import photos that um, uh, ha from your phone, it'll actually backdate the journal entry to the date and time you took the photo. And you could you could also um, like with multiple journals, if you have several kids, especially if they're young, you could have different journals for each one where you could write little things down that they do. That's cute. And, uh, you know, save pictures to them. I, I don't know. I, I think it is definitely a, a significant improvement in terms of paying for it. Again, I, you know, I, I'm kind of crotchety about that stuff. I feel like people should not be complaining about having to buy these apps again, especially after it's been this many years. Um, if we want great software to thrive, then we have to pay for it. And if we don't, then we won't get great software. And um, this is definitely worth paying for. I, I bought both. Um, now, this when this show comes out, I think it's going to be right on the cusp of that, that discount going away. So I, I posted on it, I think probably... We should tweet about it or something because you guys are going to maybe be out of time on the discount, but it's even at the regular price, it's completely worth it. Well, I just look at it as if you look at the price, um, you know, if you take the retail price, it's, I guess it would be uh, $50 total, but you said you're going to use that app for the next five years is paying $50 for five years worth of use of day one worth it. If yeah. you like the journal, then absolutely. That's you know nothing. Still has all the support for tags and hashtags. Um, you can star favorite entries. They've got, um, you know, a, a new feature that you had mentioned is multiple pictures, which I thought that was always, I felt like a limitation. 
like if you want to do vacation journal and you want to have more than one picture on an entry, um, the way I use it largely is, is when I find myself kind of getting lost and frustrated sometimes I'll sit down and journal about it. And you know how the, just the process of verbalizing or writing down what you're thinking a lot of times helps you solve your own problem. I mean, I've never really intended anyone to read my journal, but it's nice for me as a place to kind of figure things out and sometimes go back and read it to figure out where I was at, you know, last year. Anyway, so you wrote a, it, go ahead, David, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. David. Well, I was going to, Bradley, you wrote a, a couple of articles. I know the sweet setup had, had some coverage of, of day one, 2.0. I think Stephen might've written that initial article, but then I know you've had some sub articles that have come out um, about day one and migrating and things like that. What's kind of the best practice for someone who um, originally used day one and now wants to move to version two? If you're using the, they call it day one classic now, um, when you launch day one 2.0, it'll actually migrate your data for you, regardless of what sync option you're using. Okay. Um, now, if you're already using day one sync, you don't need to do anything. You can just sign in and it, everything downloads. Um, and again, I know some people had some issues that first night, but um, I think that's pretty common with new apps that the server load is pretty high. Right. So, yeah, as long as you've got day one uh, classic installed, when you launch day one 2.0 to migrate all your data, you can get set up with the um day one sync account and then you're good to go and there's no charge for that day one sync uh, either so that's another benefit of paying for the app is you get a free sync service mm-hmm. so it'll it'll sync to all your devices uh, including the mac and the ipad as uh, well and of course they on the ipad did they did add features um for ios 9 like slide over and things like that so that'll help people with uh um, ipad air 2s or um, ipad pros well, it's it's a nice update, and I I had no idea it was coming. So I was one of the you know gang out there that just found out the day it launched, and and I immediately bought it. And um, I'm I'm already using it more. I mean, one of the things I don't think we've really stated is the user interface. I think has improved quite a bit as well, and it's it's got a little more delightful to use, and and that makes me want to use the software more. One other feature I wrote about that I think, uh, especially if if you're a person that's going iPad only, that's very uh, helpful is they do have the ability to back up your backup. So in the settings, there's a backup screen where the app automatically makes backups, I think, every couple of days. Well, you can actually export that backup and like save that to Dropbox, for example. So if you're, uh, you know, again, since you don't control day one sync, you might want to periodically go in there and just make a backup just in case. And then you can also export it to PDF and export it to text as well. So there's lots of good nuggets in the uh, iOS settings screen. Now, is that um, backup? I haven't examined this. Is does the backup? Is it is it something you can unpack and actually get text and pictures out of it, or is it is it a you know proprietary strange file? It's a zip file. I believe my phone's in the other room, or I would check. Uh, but it's a zip file, so I imagine you could get in there and at least find something. But again, yeah. they do offer export to PDF. And I what I've generally done in the past is um, like as part of my like end of the year stuff, I'll just export it to PDF, throw it in the Dropbox and never look at it again, but it's always there if I needed it. Yeah. Well, thanks Bradley for reporting in on this and all the work you've been doing um, with day one and getting people using the application. It's really much appreciated. Thanks for having me guys. Always appreciate it. Yeah. What's going on? Give people an update of what's going on with you and what's going on over at the sweet setup now. Sweet setup is is uh, uh it's been very very busy. We have a uh, we're going through right now and updating a lot of our older reviews. So if you if you're not familiar with the sweet setup, is we take categories of apps and we try to find the best one or you know one we we consider to be our favorite. And so 
of course, the thing about apps is they're always changing. So one of our projects this year is kind of going through review by review and and looking at the updates that apps have had. Is our review still the same? Um, and just kind of staying after the staying after what's going on with those apps because we consider these to be kind of our core suite of apps that we recommend to Mac and iOS users. And so, yeah, definitely check it out. It's, it's over at thesweetsetup.com. It's a, uh, a Blanc Media website, so it's um, owned by Sean Blanc. And then we have a number of guys that help write with it, Stephen Hackett, um, Chris Gonzalez, and uh, myself and Jeff Abbott as well. So lots of, lots of good stuff happening, and we uh, are writing generally every day of the week now. Awesome. Nice. Nice. Great. Well, Bradley, thank you so much for joining us. We'll put links to the uh, Sweet Setup review of Day 1 Version 2 in the show notes, as well as the articles that that you've written, uh, and would encourage people to go check it out. I've I've also got the new versions, and uh, I'll report back as as to how it's using having, having multiple uh, journals again. I'm looking forward to that. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Well, we've still got a couple more things to go through and want to talk about some of the tech that we're playing with. But before we do, I want to take a minute and talk about our last sponsor for this episode. And that is our friends over at Hover. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about them on the show before, but quite simply, Hover is the best way to buy and manage your domain names. And, you know, as you probably know, Hover has been my choice of place to buy my domain names for years. And, you know, there are a number of places that you can go to, to buy domain names, but I like Hover because it is just so easy. It is no hassle. They will help you quickly and easily find the domain names that you need whenever you have an idea for a project. But best of all, they are hassle-free. Um, you don't want to be faced with a thousand screens and a ton of add-ons and high prices. You just want to go buy what you need and get on with your life and feel like you've had a, a pleasant experience. Uh, it's very easy to search for domains. You enter the phrase you want or some keywords and Hover will find the best batches for you and show you a list of all the TLDs available. They have all the ones you'd expect like .com, .co, and .me, but then they also have a crazy list of new ones too, like dot plumbing and dot coffee and anything else that might be interesting to you. Um, and while I'm talking about their TLD selections, they have great prices now on the over 400 options they have. Like for example, they've just lowered the prices on their dot com domains. They're now only $12.99. And this includes who is privacy for free. So you don't have to worry about someone finding out your contact information and stalking you on the internet because Hover believes you shouldn't have to pay to keep your private information private. They also have fantastic customer support. I've used it myself. No hold, no wait, no transfer policy. Whoever you talk to on the phone is going to be pleasant. They're going to take ownership of your issue and they are going to get it resolved. And you're going to talk to a real human being, not just a robot or a person reading a script. It is wonderful. Uh, and don't forget they have the valet service so they can take all the hassle out of switching from your current provider. Just give them the information and they will do it for free. Whether you have 10 or 200 domain names, they will get it done for you. Um, Hover also has an awesome new feature called Hover Connect that makes it easier than ever to connect your new domain. I've used this a couple of times. So if you have a standard service like Squarespace or Tumblr or Shopify, um, you just add a little information and Hover will automatically amend all of your DNS records for you. You don't have to worry about copying and pasting. And if you get a dot wrong or a number wrong, having things not work, Hover will just take care of it for you. So head on over to Hover.com now and use the coupon code MPU Live. That's all caps MPU Live at checkout. And you'll get 10% off your first purchase over at Hover.com and show your support for Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So thank you to Hover for sponsoring this episode. Uh, a live update. While we've been doing the show, uh, David has been over in the Reddit group and now we have shows uh, current. So we've got MPU episodes all up to this one by the time you hear this. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit about the tech we're playing with. I've got a little bit more content here than usual. Uh, the first thing I wanted to do is give a little shout out to Better Touch Tool. And this is an app that, again, I talk about occasionally on the show. I think I use it a lot more than Katie because I'm more of a, a, a trackpad guy than a mouse guy. But Better Touch Tool is this really remarkable application that can supercharge the trackpad in your MacBook or even the Magic Trackpad next to your Mac where you can have it do certain things. Like, for instance, I've got the new Magic Trackpad. If I force press on the lower left corner, it takes the existing window and makes it half the screen on the left side of the screen. Uh, you can do a whole bunch of more things. Like, you can have three fingers down and tap one to make something happen. Uh, it, it almost is like turns running your trackpad into something more like playing the piano, and it can really allow you to automate a lot of things. Well, um, so the um, Better Touch tool uh, has always been uh, free or, or um, you know, I guess donationware software. And I've always complained about it because I always felt like this is something the guy should get paid on because he's always updating it. And by the way, they also have features in it for things like the, the Magic Mouse. Uh, well, he just came out with a new version and now it is paid for. And it's a very soft touch. I mean, it's, it's just pay what you think it's worth kind of thing. So it doesn't cost a lot. Uh, I paid actually quite a bit more than he recommends, <laughs> but the, um, but it is paid for software now. And this is really a great time to go support a software developer. I really enjoyed um, reading his fact and I could tell he went through a lot of like, you know, he had a lot of trouble coming up with the, um, he had a lot of trouble coming to the decision to charge people for it. Cause I think he really didn't want to, but at the end of his post, he writes something to the extent of, you know, the only other option was to stop developing it because mm -hmm. it's just taking so much time. And this is an exact example of what I was talking about earlier. We really want to support this great software. And if you haven't tried better touch tool, go, go download it and give it a try. Uh, this is a great time to support the developer and, um, and really get some software that can really drastically improve the speed at which you use your Mac. Did you ever get into Better Touch Tool? That's because you're kind of a mouse person. It probably isn't as big of a deal to you. No, I haven't really gotten into it. I'm a mouse. That's player. not really a pick. I guess that's just a call out. Um, I have a pick too, but why don't you go first? So the pick that I'm going to mention is the one that we've been using most of this episode. Um, and despite some of the issues that we've had with the live stream, this piece is held up flawlessly, and that is Loopback. It's a audio app from Rogue Amoeba that basically allows you to reroute audio in very interesting ways. In fact, it was the solution to the problem that we were having with the live chat, not necessarily hearing all the audio or hearing echoes in the audio. But you know, doing the live show is a very convoluted audio setup, made particularly so because of the fact that I don't have a mixer. Um, we were doing, in, in fact, I probably just need to get one. But uh, doing the show, we've done it before. And you know, having, you know, you and me and a guest and then having audio comments, you know, piped in from other people that we've saved um, using a soundboard, um, the soundboard, the audio application soundboard, and then having to send an audio stream out to the chat room and then having to do a backup recording of the mic and then having to do a backup recording of both of our audios. Yeah, it's it's actually a pretty complicated bells and whistles setup of what we've had to do here. And I had a pretty convoluted setup before that involved using a second Mac. And I was very fortunate that I had a second Mac that I could dedicate to this task. But it, it was a really odd setup. 
And what Loopback has allowed me to do is to create some virtual audio devices and basically pair audio together on the fly and say, okay, well, in this channel, I'm going to take my Rode Podcaster input and I'm going to take the soundboard input and I'm going to send that through to Skype. So David not only hears me, but he also hears the soundboard. And then on this channel, I'm going to take um, my microphone and I'm going to take Skype and I'm going to take the soundboard and I'm going to send that through so that the chat room hears that. Uh, and then over here, I'm going to record just my audio so that we have a clean copy that goes through uh, to the MP3 that's being recorded um, that, that will ultimately turn into the podcast later. And all of these things I can do by creating these virtual audio interfaces and loopback. And uh, it's it's kind of fun. It's um, If you do any kind of audio work, you know that this stuff is just unheard of. And I don't know what kind of black magic they've put together to make it work, but it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And this is the first episode we've used it. And I think you've kind of, you've gotten pretty good at it already. <laughs> well, there there were a few hiccups, but I, I, yeah, we got it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I have this problem I've been facing with um, going to meetings, you know, in the day job. And I want, I have a very fancy briefcase, but I don't always need it. And it's quite big. And, and but I still want to be able to carry the iPad Pro and the keyboard and the notepad and maybe some few pieces of paper and things with me into a meeting and I don't want to use my canvas, um, you know, carry bag or a backpack because, you know, you're a lawyer, you got to look kind of nice when you walk into a place. So I've been looking for something in the middle between, you know, a really fancy briefcase, but you know, something too informal. Um, so they came out at Waterfield with a new bag. It's called the STAD S T A A D uh, attache. And it's really like perfect for me. I I've just had it now a week and, I already love it. It's um, it's like a wax canvas with a leather flap over the top. It's got a really nice buckle on it, a handle, and I can walk into a meeting with this thing and it looks just fine. Uh, the way they designed it, it's not a, a lot of the Waterfield stuff is designed for a specific device. You know, like it only holds a 13 inch MacBook Pro or it only holds a iPad Pro. This one actually can hold most of those devices. It can hold an iPad Pro naked, an iPad Pro with the smart case, or even with one of those larger like Logitech keyboard cases. It can also hold a 13-inch MacBook Air or, or a MacBook uh, Pro Retina. With mine, I can slide in, if I'm really crazy, I can slide in both the iPad Pro and a MacBook, and it carries it just fine and still has room to carry stuff. And it looks really nice. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes so you can take a look at it, but it's just a nice professional looking bag. It's got the flap on the back so I can put it on my roller when I go to the airport. And um, I'm just really happy with this bag for that, that problem I had. And um, I know it's kind of boring to talk about a bag, but this is, this is a good one. Awesome. It's always nice when you find a nice bag. Yeah, it is. I, I can't, I realize that, you know, I used to tease my wife about purses and I realized that I am just as bad, if not worse when it comes to carrying carrying you know bags and stuff so I, I really have no room to say anything all right okay well hey we got to the end of another show uh thank you everybody it, now if you've got something to share with us we really like it this time we didn't we only had a couple audio comments and i know we've got some more set up for next month already but we want to get more and and you can do that uh you just got to go into that voice memos app on your iphone that's the easiest way uh, and record something, try and keep it two minutes or less. So, you know, we can't make it too long. It gets crazy. Uh, send it to feedback at MacPowerUses.com and, and we'll get you in the show. Oh, and David, I think we forgot at the top of the show because we had all the issues. We forgot to share our news. 
Um, we're actually going to have to reschedule the live show next month because I've got to go to a, a wedding shower. Okay. Well, yeah. that's important. It is important. So uh, MPU Live is going to be one week early next month. So it's going to be, instead of having it on March 5th, it's going to be on February 27th. Um, same bat time. It's going to be uh, from 1 p.m. Eastern to p- uh, 10 a.m. Pacific. I think that's 6 p.m. GMT for those of you who uh, are so inclined. Um, but it's going to be on the 27th, which means we've got a week less time to collect your feedback. So make sure that you send a feedback in, especially your audio comments, your tips and your twix. Uh, twix. You can send in twix. That'd be great. <laughs> Katie, have you been drinking? Because I, I don't know. All show long. <laughs> There's a lot of Bugs Bunny coming out of you today. <laughs> it's, it's the new loop back. I think that's what it is. <laughs> All right. Thanks to our sponsors, uh, Gazelle, Sandbox, Hover, and Bushel. We will see you all soon with uh, more great content. And thanks for listening to the Mac Power Universe. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.